Welcome to the Game Plan Podcast with Judah Newby and Brian Perkins, breaking down all things Seahawks. And welcome to another edition of the Game Plan Podcast, 1029thegame.com. Alongside Brian Perkins, I'm Judah Newby. On a Friday morning ahead of Super Bowl 52 in Minneapolis, where the Patriots will take on the Philadelphia Eagles, a rematch of the 2004 Super Bowl. We'll talk about that a little bit later on. And, uh, of course, today's conversation is going to center mostly, though, on a couple of the recent hirings on the offensive staff for Pete Carroll. Brian Schottenheimer as offensive coordinator, Mike Solari as offensive line coach. Plus, we'll get to a few more things along the way. Luke Wilson made some interesting comments to Barstool Sports. Another promotion from within for the Seahawks at the quarterback coach position. And, of course, we'll predict uh, Super Bowl 52 along the way. But Perkins, first things first, here we are, Super Bowl weekend. Pretty exciting. How are you feeling? Two two weeks ago, we had our last competitive football game. It's always, <laughs> it's always a very long two weeks in between Championship Sunday and the Super Bowl, at least it for is. me. It's like waiting for Christmas as a kid, yeah, or even as an adult. Oh, you know, for sure. you like we're we're borderline Christmas Eve. We're excited, but right when the Super Bowl ends, you're like, "Damn, we have how many months until football again?" Yeah. So you know, it's exciting. I think it's a great matchup. You know, and when the Patriots are in the Super Bowl, as much as we all don't like the Patriots, it does add intrigue because they never have a boring. Have they ever played a boring? Super Bowl game. No, they really haven't. I mean, so many close victories, and the only one that wasn't as close, I think, was the Philly one. They were up by 10 in the last three minutes before Philly scored late to make it a one-score game and then didn't get the onside kick. So, But other than that, incredible dramatic finishes, not the least of which last year's 28-3 miracle comeback and, of course, Super Bowl 49's ridiculous uh, finish to that. When you just talk about it from a Super Bowl perspective, some epic finishes to the most epic game in American sports. He really can't write this stuff. I Sometimes I think about it big picture, and I'm like, wow. The Super Bowl has been ridiculously epic on so many levels in recent years that it's hard to con- comprehend. I don't know if we're going to be able to appreciate that going down the road. Not every game is going to be like this. Yeah, no, I know. And here's the one thing, though, that that people... Look, if you're a hardcore football fan or, or you want to just watch the game, right? Like, I am that person. Yeah, I don't care about the halftime show. Me neither. I don't care about the the pregame festivities. What about commercials? Don't care about commercials. I care. I don't care about commercials. I used to. No, I used to. But ever since they're released ahead of time now, and to be honest with you, I don't think they've the, the quality is there. They've like gotten it used worse over the years, and they've gotten more serious. I feel like, yeah. like they put a lot of production into an ad that's like sentimental or serious. And yeah. I'm like, what are we yeah. doing here? It's about like laughs. What's that? Yeah, I mean, you know, like those types of ads back in the day. I yeah. mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm doing this whole like, well, back in like back the, in my day, the Super Bowl commercials were, were way better. Yeah, you know, it's all perspective. But yeah. you know the commercials I'll probably I've been able to pay more attention to with Seattle not in the Super Bowl. Yeah. Because when Seattle's in was in the Super Bowl during commercials, I was thinking about what had happened prior to commercials. You have to process the game within the game as the game is going yeah, because on. Because you're yeah. a fan of that team. So Absolutely. like you're thinking about it a lot more. Right. As a as a neutral observer, it's definitely allows you to enjoy some of those like uh fringe things a little bit more. Yeah. But you know, I'm not doing Super Bowl party. I'm gonna have a buddy come over. I don't want to have to um I don't want people trying to talk to me during the game. Like I, yeah. I, when I watch football, like I want to watch it. You know what I mean? Like I'll be on social media and stuff, but like 
I don't want to have a conversation about like, well, how's work been? You know, like uh, it's not in about the second that. quarter. It's about the game. And it, thankfully, I'm thankful that Al and Chris get to do it. They're by far my favorite broadcast uh, crew. Yeah. Uh, even including Jim and Tony this year. They're the best. So let's go and dive into this content here. We'll start with Brian Schottenheimer. He was hired as offensive coordinator, confirmed a couple of weeks ago now, first reported about a month ago, I want to say. It took a little bit uh, of Seahawk Nation by surprise, given the fact that he hasn't been a play caller in a couple of years. Most recently, he's been the quarterback's coach with the Indianapolis Colts, working with Andrew Luck. But with Luck's injury, he's gone down a list of uh, reserve quarterbacks in Indianapolis. He was the offensive coordinator at Georgia before that in 2015. He was the offensive coordinator, of course, from the St. Louis Rams from uh, 2012 through 2014. And before that, the New York Jets from 2006 to 2011. Before that, quarterbacks coach with the San Diego Chargers and then a flurry of assistant coaching jobs that basically were under his dad, the uh, Hall of Famer head coach, Marty Schottenheimer. Brian is 44 years old. He'll turn 45 in the middle of October. 21 seasons overall as a paid football coach. 18 of the 21 in the NFL. Nine of those 18 as an NFL offensive coordinator. I I say all that just to reinforce the fact this guy has called plays for a large part of his career, but he also should not be treated as, and I don't think he is, but just a reminder, he should not be treated as one of those quote-unquote up-and-coming young minds in the game. That's what he used to be. He used to be in the John DeFilippo category. He used to be in the Sean McVay, Kyle Shanahan category. He's advanced past those guys in terms of experience and in terms of age, not in terms of talent as a play caller, but it just in terms of experience overall. That should raise the level of expectation from him for this job. He's had enough experiences, both varied, both apart from his father, Marty, and both on his own. He's had enough different quarterbacks. He's had enough different team environments. He's coached enough big games, Jets, back-to-back AFC titles, most notably in 09-010, that this job that he's in right now, in terms of the intersection of his experience and his career trajectory, this should be the peak of Brian Schottenheimer. If he is a good offensive coordinator, this should be his career peak right now. This job that he has with the Seattle Seahawks. That's one of the conclusions I've come to when kind of just taking in the whole of Brian Schottenheimer's career as a play caller. I know a lot of people are very lukewarm on it. Is that an oxymoron? Very lukewarm. (laughs) (laughs) Apathetic at best, Seahawks fans included, but certainly the national reaction has been apathetic to Brian Schottenheimer. Underwhelming. Underwhelming, for sure. However, I think there is something to be said for past failures, past struggles, past experiences, aiding to help a coach reach his peak. At some point in his career, he's going to reach his peak. I would argue there's a chance that he could reach his peak with the Seahawks, and I, 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 I think the, I think he will. I think the offense will look good under him. Sure, and you want to look. I mean, look right in your backyard for a coach that's an example of just what you said, and that's Pete Carroll, right? From a guy that failed multiple times as a head coach. Uh, and was able to obviously resurrect his career in college and then in the NFL um, by dividing, you know, by devising his system. That being said, I get where you're coming from. And Schottenheimer was one of those guys I feel like that was was an up and comer, right? He was like that sexy name, like you know, ten years ago that was like, oh man, he's you know, he's going to be the next thing. He's going to be the next offensive coordinator. He's going to be a head coach. He's a brilliant mind, and that never really panned out for him. You look at his career trajectory and all those conversations that that you just mentioned that we've had, we've had about him. 
But it was when you and I were still in college or high school. Yeah. That's how long ago it was. And it never panned out for multiple reasons. You know, was it lack of success on his part? I think that plays into it. Was it lack of talent that he had to work with? Definitely plays into it. Quarterbacks. Uh, quarterbacks. Prim- I mean, in a, in a league that, you know, has been quarterback driven for quite some time, his best quarterback was the Sanchez. Um, so I think that those all play into it. And I get where you're coming from the from the expectation standpoint, but man, what what kind of expectations do you have then for him? Do you expect an immediate turnaround offensively for Seattle? Do you expect them to get off to quicker starts? Do you expect them to have a more efficient, um, sexy looking system than they have than we've seen in the last two years, like right away? Or well, do you think I, this is going to take some time? Sexy to me means good execution. It yep. doesn't mean like. McVeigh flash or Shanahan flash. No, of course that, not. That's, I think... Moving uh, the football more than six yeah. yards in the first quarter. Scoring in the first yeah. half. Yeah, absolutely. And to answer your question, yes, I do expect that. And here's part of the reason why. Um, you know, here's some of the quarterbacks I want to mention that Brian's worked with. As a QB developer, Drew Brees at San Diego. Drew was 23 through 26 years old during Schottenheimer's time there. His best season came as a 25-year-old in 2004. 27 touchdowns, 7 picks. 65.5% completion percentage. That's very good. The team went 12-4, and four, but they lost in the wild card round, ironically, to the New York Jets. Now, that's Schottenheimer as a QB's coach. And we know there's, uh, as we'll get to later in the show, there's some variance within actually being a quarterback's coach. When he gets to the Jets, here are his quarterbacks. 2006, a 30-year-old Chad Pennington. 2007, a 31-year-old Chad Pennington, who got injured midway through the season, but did complete 68.8% of his passes. I look at that because that tells me, hey, receivers are getting open. They're completable passes. Russell Wilson completed 61% of his passes this year, a career low for a guy that averages 64% completion percentage. You know, are balls being caught? 2008, Brett Favre was 39 years old. That's not really Schottenheimer's responsibility to make Favre fit into an offense. And his arm was like falling off of his body by the end of the season. And he had 22 touchdowns, 22 picks, way too many turnovers. Um, you know, team went nine and seven. We say the Sanchez was his quote unquote best quarterback, not because Sanchez was good, but because the team was good. 53.8% completion his rookie year, 53, 56-7 his second year. But the team went to the AFC title consecutive seasons because Schottenheimer set up his young quarterback for success in the playoffs. Not unlike what the Jaguars just did with Blake Bortles. That's the comp I would have. Sanchez was able to execute good throws. And I put that on Schottenheimer because he put him in, in a position to succeed. With a limited quarterback, he was still able to maximize Sanchez's abilities, even though they weren't uh, very high. In fact, Sanchez's best season came in 2011, his third year as a 25-year-old. 26 touchdowns, 18 picks. 26 touchdowns, 18 picks. That is Sanchez's best season under Shanahan. Russell Wilson's career average, 27 touchdowns, 10 picks. That's eight fewer interceptions in a single season and more touchdowns. Russell Wilson's average year, Perkins, through six years and four Pro Bowls and two Super Bowl appearances and one championship, Russell Wilson's average year, better than any peak year any quarterback has had under Kyle Shanahan. My conclusion there, I'm excited to see what Shanahan can do with the best quarterback he's ever had the opportunity to coach. Yeah, because when you look at a a lot of what Shanahan has had to deal with, it has been guys that are essentially game managers, right? I mean... I mean, I outside Sam, of Sam Bradford had the highest potential and even Sam, I should mention, had a couple of decent years as a 25 and 26 year old quarterback. Then he got the ACL tear, missed a season, went to Philly, 
Austin Davis did decently in opportunity, and Sean Hill did decently in his opportunity. But it's Austin Davis and Sean Hill. Austin yeah. Davis, by the way, a backup with the Seahawks now. Sam Bradford, in terms of potential, the most talented quarterback Shanahan had to work with. In 2013, Bradford played seven games, had 14 touchdowns and four picks. Great ratio. 60.7% completion. A little, a tad low, but... Great touchdown to pick ratio there. Well, but, those, yeah, not great QBs for those sure. Those numbers speak to what we all kind of perceive those teams to be, right? Yeah. So what, when so when you say like, hey, how did the Jets play during Rex Ryan era football? You'd be like, well, they were really good defensively, really really good defensively, and pulled upsets in the playoffs, and they uh, pulled upsets in the playoffs. But like you talk about defense, right? Like you don't talk about offense first when talking about his teams, and then even with the Rams, same deal there. Like you talk about, I mean, they weren't any good anyway. At least the Jets, you know, made deep runs. But the Rams, you would go, what was the, you know, Jeff Fisher era like? Well, couldn't do anything offensively, but he put together some top 10 defenses in the league, but they just could never get over the hump. So I think those numbers speak to that. And some of that has to definitely to do with the talent. I'm curious to see what he does now that he does have a quarterback again. This is the first time since Drew Brees that he has had a true star potential quarterback. You know, you listen to what Pete Carroll has said in the offseason about wanting to get back to running the football, taking the pressure off Russell Wilson. I still feel like that's the direction they're going to head. But can he devise a system to get that, like you said, to get the completion percentage back up, to not rely so heavily on explosive plays and to take what is there? Because I feel like there's been something ingrained into, into Russell over the past several years where it feels like he's taking a lot of shots, right. even if he has a guy underneath for six yards. Well, it's about setting up plays to get guys open. And there didn't feel like in recent versions of the Seattle offense under Bevel, there were a lot of plays that got receivers open. And those explosive plays you're referring to seem to happen most of the time in broken play situations. Yeah. Did they not? Oh, and yeah, It definitely. was Russell in the back of his head just knowing improvising will be our most successful you know, form of offense here, even though it might not be reliable every time. Yeah, and improvising is not a bad thing. It's not a bad skill to have, but right. if you're doing it constantly, that is a definite negative. So I'm curious to see the type of system that they end up implementing. I like the, you know, I think those completion percentages are encouraging for two reasons. Because what that tells you, when you look at high completion percentage, this is what I think of. I think that that number sometimes can be misleading because people talk about it in regards to how good a quarterback is. Mm -hmm. Like in college, you know, oh, so-and-so was such a great quarterback. His oh. completion percentage was 70%. He was so good. College completion percentages are not Very indicative misleading. at all. Very misleading. Yeah. But it speaks to the type of game plan that you're willing to run, and you're going to put your guys in the in position to succeed, and you're not going to try to do a feast or famine situation offensively. Does that make sense? Well, that's why people say yards per attempt is better because yeah. that factors in not only completion percentage, really, but also how productive are you being with your completions? How productive are you being with your number of pass attempts? And, um, you know, there's only been a couple of years where Schottenheimer quarterbacks have done decently in yards per attempt. We can get into specifics at a later podcast, but... You mentioned defense. Another aspect of Schottenheimer's best offenses has been their run game and the ability they've had yep. been able to produce on the ground, helping complement their ability to execute through the air. Most notably, rush attacks that included Thomas Jones going for over a thousand yards one year with the Jets. 
and for an aging Ladanian Tomlinson and Sean Green to work together to go for over 1,500 yards with the Jets the following season. But their ability to produce on the run or produce in the run game, you know, rushing touchdowns, rushing attempts, rushing yards per attempt, uh, Schottenheimer offenses have consistently ranked top 10. In fact, three of the six years that he had with the Jets, they were in the top 10 in those categories. Which is why Pete Carroll brought him in. I think so. To get back to that, to get back to what he wants to do. And whether you agree or not, I mean, it sounds like that's what he wants to do. And utilizing Russell Wilson in that, by the way, is something that they are, are going to do if they're smart, at, at the very least. Get, you know, Getting back to some of those, not relying on him to run the football, but using that threat at the very least to open some things up. Um, here's my ultimate take on Schottenheimer. I am not sold on him at all. I think nepotism is a problem in sports, and especially in the NFL. Look at the Carolina Panthers right now. It's basically just Norv Turner's family, the coaching staff. And sometimes we tend to look at sons of coaches a little bit more. We give them a little bit more slack because we just have faith in them because their dad was, you know, so legendary or this or that, that they have to be good, right? Because their dad was that good. Schottenheimer has not lived up to expectations pretty much anywhere he's gone. If he would, he would be a head coach right now in the NFL. I mean, let's be honest. He he wouldn't be being hired as an offensive coordinator in 2018. So this is his last chance, I feel like, to prove himself. You know, the excuses have been there. The quarterbacks, you know, haven't been great. This is his opportunity now. He has a quarterback on a Hall of Fame trajectory that has won a Super Bowl. You have weapons on the outside with Doug Baldwin. This is your chance to prove yourself as an offensive coordinator and that you didn't get there by family name only. That's how I feel about this. I can't disagree with the nepotism argument and that some per, the perception of some assistant coaches is inflated based on their family. That does happen. That being said, I the more I study Schottenheimer, the more I'm going to buy in to the potential there. I'm going to buy in to him improving as a play caller and, you know, having 3 years distance from his last offensive coordinator job with the St. Louis Rams of all teams. You know, coordinating at Georgia, two years, QB's coach at Indianapolis since then. That's going to serve him well for this stop as offensive coordinator. Keep in mind the coaches that he has worked under. Dick Vermeil, Marty Schottenheimer, fine. Eric Mangini, Rex Ryan, Jeff Fisher, Chuck Pagano. Don't tell me that Pete Carroll's not the best name far and away on the list of coaches Easily. that he's had a chance to work with. And to be honest, I mean, if we're talking big picture... Yes, I think change was needed at offensive coordinator. But I think your offensive coordinator is not as important as everybody makes it out to be. Execution, clarity, focus, to me, those things are more important. It's about the players, really. You know, offensive coordinators don't win games. They can set you up for success, yes, but I don't think Brian Schottenheimer gets the Seahawks one more win if he's the offensive coordinator last year necessarily. I think a lot is made about it because it's a big change and, and it's going to change how we watch the offense. But there's a, you know, if Seattle executes the same way next year, the way that they did under Bevel, they're going to be nine and seven again and miss the playoffs. That's my overall point. You I know? get what you're saying there. Yeah. I, but I think that what a lot of fans are, are clamoring for, and rightfully so, is creativity a little mm-hmm. bit. Is it, it felt like late in the year that Seattle lacked any sort of creativity at all offensively. And it was relying a lot on explosive plays and, you know, two and a half yard runs. That's how it looked. It looked, you know, you watch other other quarterbacks. You watch like what Deshaun Watson did before his before he went down with the injury. You watch even what Tom Brady does in New England, which is hard. 
when people compare other teams to New England, it's like they're the best team ever. So maybe don't try to like – I mean, you want to be the best team ever, but – this is literally what the Patriots have done. We have never. You got to do before. what you do well yeah, and what yeah. you believe in. You can't <laughs> yeah. just try to emulate note for note what other people do. That, Especially, it's not yeah. what Pete Carroll's going to do anyway. Of course not. But but when you look at some of these other offenses that are run, even what McVeigh has done right in, with in, mm-hmm. in L.A. with the Rams, you know, you look at teams that just seem to have like this creative edge, and guys are always open. Like someone is always open in those offenses. And with Seattle, it didn't feel that way. Right. It felt like. Wilson either wasn't comfortable throwing the ball because the window was too tight or because there was a defensive lineman in his face or because they weren't respecting the run because, you know, they were on their ninth string running back at that time and running the football was really bad for this team. I mean, there are a myriad of reasons for that, but I think that's why a lot of what what a lot of people are clamoring for, too, is being able to devise a system that is going to create opportunities for for your players and it didn't feel like that the last few seasons under Bevel. It did not. No, absolutely. And a lot of that is going to predicate on how well can you run the football. And with that, let's transition to the other offensive coach of note that the Seahawks hired in recent days and that's going to be Mike Solari as their offensive line coach Perkins, a guy that has a wealth of experience coaching in the NFL. Oh man, he's been around forever. He's been coaching at the college level since the 70s, the late 70s, At least the college level, right? Yeah. At least the college yeah. level or higher. Yes, yes. He started in you know at the high school level, but okay, so he has been um, you know, a coach for 40 years essentially at the college level or higher. Of those, 30 years have been spent as as the offensive line coach for whatever program he was a part of. 30 out of 40 years, 75% he's been of the time, the offensive line coach. Yes. And 19 of those 30 were in the, have been in the NFL. Wow. So he knows what he's doing. I'd say he knows the types of guys that he wants. And based on his track record, he knows what it takes to be successful. You know, he learned under Bob McKittrick in, um, who was, you know, the legendary O-line coach in San Francisco. Hmm. He was kind of his protege and he kind of developed that same no nonsense, tough style of coaching. Um, and, you know, you hear guys, okay, for example, you hear like a Walter Jones who played for him when he was in Seattle. Walter Jones was on the latter half of his career. He ended up getting a knee injury his first year in Seattle and then ended up retiring the following season after not being able to play. That ultimately ended his career, right? But and that was in 2010? This was 2009. 2009. 2008, 2009. Okay. And this is, what, this is part of what Walter Jones said about this during his first stint in Seattle, Solaris. This is a guy who's going to demand that you go out there and be held accountable for your work. That's part of what he said. And he went on to talk about, like, he wants, he, he's willing, he's open and willing to listen to ideas and to change his philosophy. He's not necessarily stuck in his ways, but whatever he tells you to do, he expects you to go out there and he is going to hold you accountable. Sounds like a coach. It sounds like a, like a, like a coach for sure, especially coming from Walter Jones, who is one of the greatest, if not the greatest tackles of, in NFL history. Yep. I mean, and if he's saying that about him, clearly he was held accountable by Solari, right? Yeah. Uh, when he was playing there. You know, and Solari's a guy that came in to Seattle and um, in 2008 and is, is the one that introduced the zone blocking system, which Pete Carroll continued really? into his era. And he actually offered Solari a job in Seattle as tight ends coach. And Solari ended up going to the to the Niners and, and had some, some very successful seasons there. Mm-hmm. But... Pete Carroll ended up keeping that zone blocking system, but when Tom Cable came in in 2011, they the zone blocking system is just a little bit different in terms of the body type that they are looking for, right? And I think that where you need to be encouraged is potential talent evaluation moving forward, because when you look at the guys 
um, that Tom Cable drafted. Obviously not a lot of success there, and he looked for a different body type. Solari wants maulers on the inside, versatile, athletic guys on the outside to run his system. And a guy that he you know, was, had, a, had a big part in drafting, by the way, was Max Unger, who obviously was traded away, but a guy that's had a great NFL career, which you know has to be encouraging a little bit, right? If you're a Seahawks fan, to know that he was a guy that, that took part in that decision-making process to bring in one of the better offensive line, probably the best offensive lineman you've had, right, um, in Seattle in the last eight years, unless you count Okung, maybe? I don't Boy. know. That's a tough conversation. (laughs) It is. But this is a guy in Solari, like I'm saying, that just, you know, clearly knows what he wants. The body type, you're going to see a little bit different while while you hear zone blocking, right? Do you kind of roll your eyes when you hear that zone blocking? No, because I know that there's so many variations within the zone blocking scheme. Like, seriously, a 300-page book could be written about zone blocking. (laughs) So it is hardly all zone blocking does not fit under one umbrella. And that's why and the majority of teams do it. Yeah. And that's why when you hear that, though, don't roll your eyes at this yeah. because it is going to be different than what Tom Cable was doing. I mean, a could end up moving back inside because he's kind of one of those maulers. He does fit the prototype. And to be honest, was did a have a more successful rookie or sophomore season? Boy, I, I mean, I guess I'd say sophomore just in terms really? of like straight up blocking, you know, but in terms of penalties, that's. That's its own thing. I know that factors into the performance, but I, I didn't like him at all last year. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, he's, he's still got room to impress me. Neither year was great, okay? But but your your point being that he played on the inside as a rookie. He played on the inside, and maybe it was because there weren't as many glaring penalties, but he clearly looked trigger-happy and um, not comfortable at all outside, mm-hmm. right? So yeah. maybe bringing back him back inside is what, what you're going to see Solari do. But here's a few stats, too. During the 49ers time, because when you think about the 49ers under Jim Harbaugh, you think about a a very, very good, efficient offense that ran the football well, correct? I do, yeah. Joe Staley at right tackle and uh, Ayapati. Ayapati. Mahler, Gore, Kendall Hunter, LaMichael James, relentless run games. Yep. Yeah, that were really, really good and complimented their mobile quarterback and both Alex Smith and Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, yeah. And it, things really came to fruition in 2012. Um, with this team, you know, he's Solari was there from 2010 through 2014, but 2012, 2013 and 2014, respectively, they were fourth, third and fourth in the NFL in rushing offense. Yep. They averaged in 2012, get this 5.1 yards per carry is a team. Wow. Just incredible part of cap. That's caps breakout season too. It is as a point of reference in 2017, the Seahawks says a team averaged four yards per carry. I mean that's significant. It doesn't sound like a lot, but oh, that, no, it's that's massive for per rush. It's a whole yeah. yard more. That's third and one instead of third and yeah. two and a half or third and three. Yeah, a half yard is even huge in rushing game. Twenty thirteen, they averaged four point four yards per carry, and then four point six in twenty fourteen. Um, in two thousand nine, the year before he came in, they rushed for sixteen hundred rushing yards. Were ranked twenty fifth in the league that year. Twenty ten, things didn't turn around very quickly. They went up to 19th in the league in rushing, but only rushed for 57 yards more as a team hmm. than they did the previous year. So the, the change wasn't immediate, and you could argue that the trajectory of their run game was due in large part to Staley and Ayupati. Staley got his, you know, his first Pro Bowl was in 2012, um, four-time Pro Bowler during four of the five years that, nice. that Solari was there, and then Ayupati was a two-time Pro Bowler as well. Hmm. Those were in the later years, 13 and 14, I believe. So... Those guys were good, man. Oh, man, they were. They they were really good. Um, now, a couple of concerning statistics. Sure. Pass protection. 
big problem for Seattle last year and the year before that, right? The 49er, 49ing pass protection ranks aren't maybe as good as you would think. And this is, you know, it's kind of hard to tell, right? Because it's not like rushing yards, right? It's not as tangible necessarily. Yeah, as and, and there are multiple you know, factors involved for, for pass pro numbers. A lot of reasons. So I looked at sacks, and sacks are, are, are still difficult because there are coverage sacks, there are sacks that are on the offensive line, and there are sacks that are on the quarterback for making a bad decision, right? Not, all, not every sack is created equal. In 2010, they were 26th in the league in sacks allowed with 44. They allowed that same number in 2011, moved up to 25th. 2012, 21st in the league. You think it would be better just because the run game was so good that year. You know, they were fourth in the NFL running, allowed 44 sacks that season. Hmm. Then they bump up to 11th in 2013. They allow 39, which is a pretty low number. I know it's only two less than 41, but you know, it's particularly interesting because I think, you know, Alex Smith was still the quarterback in 2012 until he got concussed. Yeah. And then 2013 was a full season of Kaepernick and he can avoid sacks with the best of them. So I wonder how that kind of factored into the discrepancy between 2012 and 2013 sacks allowed. The problem was 2014 things really fell off again. Yeah. Ranked 29th in the NFL in sacks allowed 52. Wow. Yeah. Huge number. Huge number. Not even close to the record, by the way. Well, that's what happens when but... you play in the Seahawks division. <laughs> and the Rams. And the Rams. I mean, you're playing... Hell, the Cardinals is a good rush. Yeah, even... Yeah, yeah, so... That, that, that's a good spin on my part. That's a bad number. That's a bad number. You're it's right. It's a bad number, and that was his final year in San Francisco, and I think that that number tells the story as to why. But I think that you have to be encouraged by what Solari's going to bring to the table. He's going to bring a lot of experience... He's worked with, on teams with with mobile quarterbacks, not only with Kaepernick in San Francisco, but you know he was assistant offensive line coach in 2015 uh, with the Packers, so Aaron Rodgers, and then obviously he worked with the 49ers as well back in the 90s, which is the connection between him and Pete Carroll back in the day uh, when when Steve Young was on the team. So this is a guy that does have that experience, and I think can help teach because what we've seen with this offensive line in Seattle, in my opinion, Judah is some of those penalties are emphasized because of the way Russell Wilson plays, right? Like, guys are technically grabbing onto a jersey, and then when Russell bails to the outside and that lineman tries to go after him, it looks like holding. Right. Because technically it was, even though it really wasn't holding just a millisecond before. So I think that you're going to have a coach that's going to be able to come in and really coach these guys up to protect a mobile quarterback better. And his own blocking scheme is going to involve less thinking. And we saw guys that were constantly jumping off sides. They were holding. They were in the wrong position. Guys were left unblocked. There were a lot of jailbreak situations. And his zone blocking scheme, I believe, is going to be a lot simpler than what Tom Cables was, which is good That's because there's a lot of young talent still on this offensive line. And you need to make this as simple as possible for them, I think, to be successful. Love it. Yeah, big fan of that. Also, you know, the idea that um, Solari, 63 years old, and I already mentioned Schottenheimer's 44, will turn 45 in the middle of the season. Maybe this is more anecdotal. I think there's something to be said for coming to a new place at this stage of life for Mike Solari after everything he's seen, coached, and experienced, and being like, all right, look, (laughs) I can't coach forever, but I'm 63 here with this group of guys with a head coach that infuses energy and positivity and enthusiasm. I'm going to go full buy-in and kind of treat it like, I know he's probably not thinking about retirement, but treat it as 
Let's get all myself together for one last go with this unit. Bring my absolute best resources to the table with this unit. Not that he wouldn't anyway, but that would seem to me to be a typical approach for a new situation. New coach in a, in a new place. I know he's with Seattle for a second time technically, but new coach, new place, 63 years old. Last five to ten years of my coaching career, let's give it everything I got. Let's let's really do it. Could that not create some type of positive edge and, and effect? And again, maybe that's the furthest tangible thing and more emotional, but I, well, I kind of see that as being a possibility. Sure. Yeah. And I, I also think that, I think that this is encouraging in the end, unless you don't like, you know, running the football, which, you know, I was very adamant against emphasizing the run last year because it didn't feel like they had the personnel to at all execute. That and they couldn't do it. They just couldn't do it. Yeah. It, it came up in moments, Mike Davis, Chris Carson, particularly, but way too few, but moments. as a whole, it was inconsistent. Horrible. Pete Carroll said this off season, they want to go back, get back to that style of play you have to to some degree you do he brings in schottenheimer who has a history of success in the run game schottenheimer slash pete bring in solari who once again has a history of coaching teams that have been successful running the football this is this is a continuity play and this is a play on a guy that has had success in the system that they want to run so whether or not you agree with necessarily the way that seattle is going to play they have brought in the guys to establish that kind of continuity, and there's going to be, um, you know, there, there's going to be, I think, a, a really nice flow in, within the coaching staff that maybe wasn't there the last few years. It felt fragmented. Let's get to our final segment here. I call it end of rounds. The last uh, bullet points on the podcast nice. before we close it up. I did. We did. Totally this was not in the show. This is the show meeting. I, I think, like it. I think Tavon Austin was on the mind because I was doing Austin <laughs> Tyler Lockett comps in my head, and I was like, "Oh, let's call this end of rounds." Not the overpaids, okay? But uh, <laughs> no, all that too for Tavon at least. Um, let's start with this. Luke Wilson was on Barstool Sports earlier this week. Made some interesting comments when he was uh, reminiscing on the uh, on the Super Bowl Forty Nine loss to New England in the final play that set it all up. The interception happens, yeah. and you're shocked, you're stunned. What's the what's the scene like in the locker room right after? I'm not like a big crier, but I'm like I'm not afraid to admit I'm legitimately crying. Mm-hmm. Beyond the criers were the bad guys, so I wasn't really mad at the moment. But there are a few dudes that were break, like personally mad, mad at the coaches, mad at the play Every, call, or yes, just like mad at the universe I for doing imagine, this. I would imagine we it's the defense. Yep, the yes. defense was and, very uh, mad. So we had a certain individual come in and, co- and bam, bust his entire hand on a, on a locker. Broke it, shattered his hand. Okay. Uh, I'm like, oh, that, that's at the tone right there. You got a guy come in and punch a wall and break every bone in his hand. Yep. Or whatever, a large amount of bones. Mm-hmm. It's going to get weird after that. Yes. yes. People were demanding answers from uh, coaches. In the moment, right in the then? Moment, demanding oh, answers. Man. Holy shit. What sucked was like there were no answers that like, yeah, there you can't right. really answer what are you the question. Say? Right, exactly. Like, why did you and, run the play? I thought we were going to score a touchdown. On yeah, that. and, and right. honestly, I don't want this to come off like I'm mad at our coaching staff because I see what they saw. I mean, would I have done it? No, but I see like there is logic. Believe it or not, there is hindsight's twenty twenty, but there is some logic behind what they're doing. Uh, did you get a chance to listen to these? I did. Go Portland Pickles. He's wearing a Portland Pickles wearing hat. Wearing a Portland Pickles hat, which was my ultimate takeaway. I know that was yours as well. I listened to the entire interview, actually, not just the, the Super Bowl Forty Nine. Oh, did you? It was really interesting just kind of getting his first. First of all, I'd I, forgotten that the Barstool thing is like on Sirius, and so like they're dropping F-bombs. Which I love. I mean, that sets them apart. Their ability to kind of get the like the 
ultimate essence of a human athlete because you, you yeah. can let it like, you can let it go. And Luke was awesome. It I was. It was. It's just weird. And I don't to even see... like language. It's Be- great. <laughs> because how do we hang out then? Because, you know, <laughs> athletes are so like in so many ways robotic and they, they've been trained by PR people and everyone to to obviously never swear and always be very neutral about a lot of different things and this and that. And to see these guys kind of able to relax and just let loose and be transparent and open and honest is really cool because it doesn't happen that often. Right. Even in like, I, I know this Tom Brady documentary is out. I haven't watched it yet. And I've heard it's really interesting. Uh, it's going to be the most produced, produced, produced thing any, of all time. That's the problem is like, it's still a, you know, it's a thousand percent pro Tom Brady perspective. And to be fair, Tom Brady in real life probably is that robotic because that's who he <laughs> is. But in general, that applies to every athlete. Yeah, but I mean, it's just it's hard to see these guys when they are actually kind of open and honest. Marshawn Lynch did it with his Bleacher Report television show that he had this last year, which was hilarious and great. Yeah. Um, and now we're seeing Luke Wilson do this as well with this interview. So that was my first takeaway was like, wow, Luke Wilson's like a super chill, like cool guy that I kind of want to just hang out with. Yeah. He includes in that uh, interview about a four minute uh, snippet talking about the Super Bowl and the final play. He was in on it. Um, you know, the Barstool guys were trying to pick his brain and kind of like mindset and especially reaction. So the play happens. Luke did point out, look, there's logic to what the coaches called. There's logic to it. I understand it. I wouldn't have done it, but there was logic to it, which kind of ratifies what we've been talking about for the last three years. Um, progressively got to that conclusion. The reaction, though, included a snippet about a guy going into the locker room and punching a wall, fracturing his hand. Players going up to coaches demanding answers in the moment. To me, that was the biggest takeaway because it just kind of like it kind of reminds you of the harsh, bleak reality of the situation for those guys in the locker room at that time. Defensive guys that had nothing to do with that final play call that felt like something was taken away from them. I don't know who it was that punched that wall. I I really want to know. I was looking at the comments. Someone brought up Bobby Wagner and then G. Scott commented after that and said it wasn't Bobby. I feel like G knows something. I don't really know. We could all speculate, but it, it's a reminder of just the ultimate kind of sadness and disappointment and anger and frustration those guys felt in that locker room. And and uh, yes, Thursday was three years to the day of that play happening, and, and it reminds you just kind of how, how sick it felt for the fans, but you can't forget how obviously sick it felt for the players too. It was painful listening to him describe things, and it also reminded me how even though these guys are super disciplined, right, like every af- – like every – part of their life seems to be planned out. They're very disciplined individuals, both mentally and physically, right? Like whether it's their diet or their mindset going into a game, you have to be, have a certain mindset, right? As a football player to take those hits and to deal with that. Yet he was like, man, we're, we're going to win this game. Like he was already thinking about that before they had won the game. After the Jermaine curse catch, he was already like wondering be, if his parents were heading yeah. down like to the field, because Oof. when you win, two people are allowed on the field. Like, just think about that. Like, he was, things were going through his head that I think would have gone through a lot of people's heads. And he even felt like, like, after the Marshawn, after his first run, when it was just a, you know, the toe tackle there that kept him out of the end zone, he was like, oh, man. He's like, he's like, oh, we got this. Like, he, he was, he was happy that he got tackled because less time for Tom Brady to run, to drive down the field. Just things like that, man, that were just, that was really fascinating to me to get that perspective because you have so many players that are, that say the cliche like, oh, it's never over till it's over or we're always thinking this and thinking that. And I always kind of go, oh, okay. But like at some point, don't you relax a little bit in your mind? And clearly some players do. I'm sure he wasn't the only one. 
and, no, and, and and I'm not saying that that's why they lost. Okay, I'm just no, saying that no. like it's just fast, fascinating, and that he was hoping that he would catch it. Remember, like he was talking about how like his side was zone. Like, I'm going to catch this ball and win the Super Bowl. <laughs> and he's like, oh man, I'm on the other side of the formation. It's <laughs> great. I got I I've watched it twice already. I'll find the full interview though as well. But when you mention the players, the the players after the game getting angry, how much does did that affect this team beyond just mm-hmm. that year? Yeah. I, no one wants to say it. No one wants to admit that that thing. You wanted to think, oh, my team's the team that can galvanize in the midst of ultimate failure. Everybody's human. I absolutely think that had some levels of effect and in terms all... of faith in your fellow teammate, faith in your coaching staff. And it's those little intangible pieces of faith or lack thereof that have tangible effects. And I think it did in moments this season and last season. No and doubt. We, we all do this, by the way. Like, at oh, our, it's at even our worse in, in probably outside regular. of sports realms. Even yeah. worse. We all, like, if, if they're like, oh, it was multiple years ago, get over it. Like, there are still some things that, that happen in my life, professionally or whatever, where, like, I still think about them and I still get, like, bitter about it. Like, absolutely. We all do that. So, that is the fallen nature of mankind, my friend. So, to think we that, hold grudges, yeah. we hold things against people, <laughs> family members, coworkers, God, whatever, you know, and it affects the decisions we make and our execution. So, how much think, more would it not yeah. affect a freaking football team and a sports team, you know? Well, and, and shame on me for, for not thinking it could. For how hard you work and how, how much goes into the blood, sweat, and tears, and to be that close and to throw it away literally, I mean, is I mean, I, I could see how that could stay with you. So if, if you go, Oh, it was years ago, they they were over it, I'm not convinced, especially after hearing Luke Wilson be so transparent about that. Last note on that. That reminds me. One of the topics I want to dive into with you in the offseason is how other teams have experienced catastrophe, how they've dealt with it, how they responded. Yeah. Bills, after Norwood's missed field goal, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that was the last Super Bowl they went to. No. They went to four in a row. I think that was either second or third. Yeah. You know, something to be said for that. Whereas, Super Bowl runner-ups, I mean, just the statistics in general with Super Bowl runner-ups is not great. Right. Trying to overcome that adversity. Um, and then the other team, so I want to kind of see how that is. Yeah. Dave Canales this week promoted from wide receivers coach to quarterback coach. A unique move in the sense that, at least upon first blush, Perkins, what? This is the guy that's going to coach Russell Wilson mechanically? This is the guy who's going to be in the QB room with Russell Wilson day in, day out? Like, what does he know about quarterbacks? Most of his background was in wide receivers. What do you know about Dave Canales? Yeah, he was even a wide receiver. In his playing career. And during his playing career. So that makes you wonder, right? You're like, wait a minute, how is he... Going to a, how is he going to coach quarterbacks? And B, how would the quarterbacks respect a guy that didn't even play that position? Right, I guess are, are two of my were my kind of first thoughts that went through my head. But after doing a little bit more research, Judah, it's not uncommon, like at all, for for really? players to move into that. Oh, interesting. Eleven coaches, quarterback coaches, currently in the NFL, have been a wide receivers coach at some point in their career. No now, <laughs> some of these guys, it was way early on in their career. Like Greg Knapp, you know, for the Falcons. He played quarterback in college, by the way. But oh, he was yeah, a, Greg Knapp. But he was a wide receiver coach at Sacramento State from 1989 to 1990, which is a long time ago. But then there's guys like Zach Taylor with the Rams. He was the assistant wide receiver coach last season, and he has now been promoted to quarterback coach. The assistant receivers he coach was is the now the quarterback coach? receivers coach. Yes. And he's the quarterback coach of Jared Goff now? Yes. Wow. So, I mean, these are just things to think about. You know, the the list is actually pretty long. You know, Jeremy Bates, we all know who he is, right? 
former Seahawks offensive coordinator. He's back with the Jets. Wasn't he the offensive coordinator that one year? Yeah, 2010. Okay. In 2010, and then they brought in Bevel. Beastquake, and yep. then he's gone. Yep, and then he was gone. And um, in 2007, he was quarterback and wide receiver coach simultaneously. Interesting. And he's the Jets quarterback coach right now. Randy Fitcher, Steelers offensive coordinator now, slash quarterback coach. He was just promoted. He was only quarterback coach, and now he's been promoted. He was a Steelers wide receivers coach from 07 to 09. Sounds like there's a lot of malleability and, uh, you know, you can structure your coaching staff on the offensive side of the ball in a bunch of different flexible ways that, that suit you best. Last one for you. Yeah. Kevin Stefanski of the Vikings. He's been with the Vikings since 2014. He was their tight end coach from 14 to 15. Running back coach in 2016 and became their quarterback coach in 2017. So, yes. And I think also the hierarchy of position coaches, quarterback is the pinnacle, I think is what we're seeing here. Because also what I, what I noticed was pretty much all the time it was quarterback coached offensive coordinator. It was rarely running back coached mm-hmm. offensive coordinator or wide receiver coached offensive coordinator. So this is a clear promotion from within the organization. And when we hear the statement from Pete Carroll or the, the report saying essentially that he was going to go elsewhere, and this was a way to keep they feel they feel like he's a brilliant mind, and this was a way to keep him in the building. I think there's a lot of truth to that because quarterbacks coach from any other position coach is a promotion. Absolutely, I think there's something to be said for the fact that Brian Schottenheimer has been a quarterbacks coach for a lot of his career um, can do can kind of function into that QB room too with Canales and Wilson in terms of you know giving advice on the QB position. A lot, a lot for me, though, I was like, well, I thought quarterback coaches had a lot of responsibility coaching mechanics. You know, in this day and age, I think quarterbacks have their own private tutors, private mechanic coaches, guys they see in the offseason, guys like Tom House in Los Angeles or things like that. Maybe that's not a position that that needs as much of a role on an NFL team. Maybe I'm wrong, but it sounds like with the examples you give, you know, it's more important to have bright offensive minds and, frankly, just good coaches on the staff. It is. Than it is to have mechanic specialists. And the other thing about these quarterback coaches that I've noticed that were former wide receiver coaches is that it's a pretty mixed bag in terms of age. So don't think it's just like, oh, yeah, well, they were a wide receivers coach, but it was back in, like, you know, the 90s. Yeah, there are a few of those guys, like a nap who's, like, in his 50s and 60s now. But, like, Zach Taylor looks younger than, than me. I, I don't remember his exact age, but a lot of these guys are young. Yeah. Young, young guys. And some of them don't are so young they don't even have Wikipedia pages or anything like they're which is surprising for like and we looked any, at Canalis isn't he thirty four yeah so yeah he's in his thirties so that is not uncommon either so don't think that it's just a bunch of old guys that oh yeah well they were a wide receiver coach but that was forever ago no some of these guys were very recently wide receiver coaches so it's it was surprising to me and it gives me you know because you're thinking oh man they have an opportunity to bring in like Jim Zorn and. This and that, but and you're like, wait, they promoted a guy who was wide receivers coach. Well, apparently it's not that uncommon because a third of the NFL teams have someone that has previously coached wide receivers, and that doesn't even count the five teams that have yet to name a quarterback coach. Canales is 36; he's about to turn 37 in May. Yeah, it's more important to keep a bright offensive mind in the building than anything else. Looks like that's kind of the move with uh, Dave Canales, who, by the way, comes from small college background. Big shout out. All right, the Super Bowl is Sunday. Time for some predictions. We got Patriots, we got Eagles, uh, two teams Seattle's very familiar with. Um, <laughs> Seattle defeated Philly, a healthy Philly, on Sunday Night Football this year, 24-10. to 10. Um, 
you know, they obviously lost to the Patriots Super Bowl 49 three years ago, but beat them in Foxborough a couple years ago as well. And overall, I don't know how you feel, Perkins, but I think the Eagles from top to bottom roster have better talent. They've got a lot of on-field matchups in their favor, most notably their defensive line against New England's offensive line, but also Philly's offensive line, much better than New England's defensive line. The way Nick Foles played in the NFC title game, best game of his career. Um, You know, I think Doug Peterson has proved a lot as a play caller. And the run game is there with guys like Ajayi and LeGarrette Blunt. I just can't get over Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, two weeks, this much on the line. It's been reinforced too many times in my head how this storyline plays out. I can't bet against it anymore. I think it's going to be a close game, but ultimately I've got New England coming out 30-26. to 26, But it, it should be a high good scoring. It will be. I think it will be high scoring. I think when you've got this much time to prepare and a team as used to performing in the fourth quarter as New England, it's the fourth quarter that comes down to it because that's when Philly's pass rush gets tired. That's when nerves might play a role into it. That's when Brady feels the urgency, and he's just done it too many times. The Patriots will score twice, at least in the fourth quarter, if they're behind going into it to at least make it close, and I ultimately have them winning. What do you think? I think one thing about this game as well is the Patriots are so good at taking away what you do best, right? Like what, that's what, does New, what does Philly do best? And that's my point, Yeah, is with Wentz out, this team is very, very balanced, and they don't have a glaring strength or a glaring weakness, it feels like, offensively. Which they're makes just, it an advantage. Yes, they're just good at a lot of stuff. You know, They're not great at really anything right now, but they're good at a lot of different things, and they have a ton of playmakers and a ton of weapons. So that's kind of one thing where I, that gives me pause a little bit in, in going with New England, just because... You know, they are so good at exploiting your weakness. And what is Philadelphia's weakness? Is it Nick Foles? I think it's ultimately Foles in terms of consistency. Yeah. Because we saw Foles' ceiling two weeks ago, but he can't replicate that two no. game, not to that degree, but what can he be? And that Doesn't was he have to make just four that, or five throws? I mean, it was coming off of the, the most emotional win yeah, of the but season. An and, historically good third down defense. Don't, yes, and Mike Zimmer led defense. Mike Zimmer's so good. If Foles can do that to a Mike Zimmer led defense, now I, I grant you the emotional factor. Do you think he can have something similar against Bill Belichick, Patricia, with two weeks to prepare? There are certain games where it feels like you go, okay, if you run that game back, that would never happen again. That game last week felt, or two weeks ago, felt like that between yeah. Minnesota. That's that's just my take on that. I think I agree. Yeah, I I, I don't Eagles, see Foles doing that again. When Nick Foles came in in place of Carson Wentz, from that point to the end of the season, they had fewer first downs than any team in the NFL. So let's not pretend like this offense is going is still as efficient and chugging along as easily as it did when Carson Wentz was was in play. And I think going into the Atlanta game, they were over on third down in the regular season with Foles. Yeah. So I mean. The, <laughs> And and all that being said, I, I'm still going to pick the Patriots to win. I cannot, and this it does go back to quarterback play in the end. I think Philly is going to keep it close, and I think it's going to be a good game just because they have so many weapons. And Foles is not like a terrible quarterback, but how can you pick against the greatest quarterback of all time going up against a guy that was a backup? I mean, I just don't know how you can just in the end it boils down. It's that simple to me, right? Like the Eagles have have more weapons; they're a better team top to bottom. I recall a Super Bowl a couple years ago between New England and another team that felt that way as well. I don't know if you remember that. We were just talking about it a few minutes ago. I don't remember it, no. <laughs> and they found a way to win. And that's what New England does. It's, you know, and maybe it is, maybe I'm buying into all the things I've heard about with this documentary that Brady watches a bajillion hours of tape and he's he's constantly, you know, he says what, if you need to give up your life to beat me because I'm giving up mine, you know, because he spends so much time 
getting ready for football and preparing for games. And in the end, when push comes to shove and it's a three-point game in the fourth quarter, typically those are the guys that win out. Yep. So It is as simple as that. Give, really me, the, give me the Patriots 24-21. I just, I'll add, you know, since we have two weeks, we break down strategy and matchups to no end, as we should. It's the Super Bowl. Those things matter and they have a role in the game. And yet, does not does it not seem like in every Super Bowl it's a play here and a play there that you couldn't forecast that you couldn't really yeah. you know that that matters. It's the Jeremy Lane interception at the goal line. Buddy breaks his arm. Thurold Simon, his replacement, ends up giving up the game winning touchdown. Right? It's freaking Chris Matthews the hundred yards in the first half. Right? It's those type of things. It's James Falcon. Harrison's fumble return for a touchdown at the yeah. end or interception. Interception. Interception yeah. for a touchdown. Ninety nine yards. Right. Um, you're right. It's like, twenty-eight to three, right? It, it's Ricardo <laughs> Allen picking picking six Brady because he, he jumped the route. No, it's guys like Malcolm Butler. You know, think plays that they practice. In my head, I think there's going to be a moment where a where a Philly guy fumbles. I don't know why I think that, but I've got like Nelson Aguilar making a catch on a slant, and then fumbles. New England gets it in a big fourth quarter moment, and they use that to use it in their momentum. I think, you know, when it comes to turnovers, I think Philly is the team ultimately that will make the turnovers, then, and New England won't. You mentioned Malcolm Butler. That speaks to what I was saying earlier as well. That play, New England knew was coming. They knew it, it was, was coming, and they had Seattle executed had, it. Seattle had run that play before. Something else Luke Wilson said, by the way. It's like, it's not the first time we've run that play. We've run it before. They knew what was coming. Before Seattle did, it felt like a little bit. So once again, they knew the play, but they didn't have the. It should be noted that they were still in goal line package. They like, were they were in heavy package. package. They weren't in a package set to design to stop that play. But once it set up, they knew that play was coming. Particularly Butler, they knew it was playing. Butler sold out for. It. I mean, when you watch the play, he sold out. Which he you sold should, out. You need to on the goal line. Yeah. Like what else? You what are you going to do? Give up an eighty yard touchdown? No, you got to sell out or or get out. You know. So. I, I guess that goes, I know, so frustrating. God dang. God dang. God dang. <laughs> but that's what New England does, and that's why it's really hard to pick against them. If if Philly wins, good on you. I'll be rooting for you guys. But I don't know how. And by the way, a, a, as much as I can't stand Tom Brady, much like like I love LeBron, but like I think that you don't know how many Super Bowls he has left. Appreciate it a little bit to a certain extent if you can. Because you're watching greatness, and when's the next time we're going to see something like this? I don't know if we'll ever see it in our lifetime yeah. again. Don't hate greatness just because just because it becomes familiar. You know, yeah. it's still greatness, and that's what Tom Brady is. All right, hell of a pod perk. That was a lot of fun. We'll do it again next Friday. Talk about a few more things as we move into the off season. I'm sure some topics will come up, and we'll break down the Super Bowl. Follow him on Twitter at Perkins Radio 13. I'm at Jude Anubi. Follow us on Twitter at Game Plan Pod. We'll be uh, getting this released on uh, Friday morning and throughout Saturday afternoon. We'll be plugging it as well. We'll see you next week, everybody.